Hello and welcome to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. I'm Martha Sutsui Billens, and today's episode is with Dr. Dorothea Hoffman, who is a documentary linguist who has worked in remote parts of northern Australia documenting the highly endangered languages Malak Malak, Jamanjung, Creole, and others. In North America, she has been involved in language revitalization projects for the Akuma, Ut, Stony Nakoda, Ho-Chunk and Cowlitz tribes, and First Nations. She is affiliated with the University of Oregon as an honorary research associate and works as a linguistic project manager for the Language Conservancy. In addition to her linguistic research, Doro also is one half of the team that runs the venture called 180 Forward, an ecotourism and education business based in New Mexico and the Pacific Northwest. In this episode, Doro and I discuss why, as researchers, we should be striving not only to help sustain the languages that we're working with, but also to help the communities regenerate the language. And by that, I mean empowering new speakers of the language, if that's what the community wants, of course. Doro also walked us through her work in spatial reference, and she shares a bit about her research into dreamtime narratives, which is something I find really interesting and a little bit hard to understand. And I'm really excited to share this interview with you because as someone who is still working in linguistics, but no longer working in academia, I found that Doro had a lot of good insights to share with us. Thank you, Doro, so much for making time to come on to Field Notes. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, of course. To start, can you take us through your, like, how did you start doing linguistic fieldwork? What was your journey into the field? Yeah, so, well, I basically started becoming interested in indigenous languages of Australia when I did a I did an exchange year in Adelaide. And um, when I was there, they did, for the very first time ever, they actually did a course on indigenous languages. And to be honest, at the time, I actually didn't like linguistics at all. I was studying German and English and found the classes I took in German and English like very strange and just, just didn't really go with anything that I that I liked about language and all that. So then I decided to take at least one serious course while in Adelaide, and that was the this linguistics course. And it, well, it literally changed my mind, um, my mind and my life, <laughs> both of them. Then, uh, yeah, just realizing how different languages can be interpreted, how, how interesting that can be. And also, uh, just what, how much more richness is in these kind of languages and that, that I just couldn't really find in English or German. Yeah. And so, uh, after that, I knew I wanted to pursue that further and basically, uh, decided that I, becoming a teacher wasn't quite what I wanted to do anymore, at least not a school teacher. And yeah, then decided to go for a PhD. And it ended up being in Manchester. And I just I just looked for the about five people in Europe that worked on Australian languages and uh, found someone who, who wanted to work with me and uh, started doing that. Yeah, so my very first field trip was in 2010 to work on Jamin Jung and Ngali Wuru and Creole. 
in the Catherine area in the Northern Territory. And it was quite scary, to be honest, to go there. Uh, my, my instructions from my advisor were giving me an address and saying, I hope she still lives there. That was my contact uh, for the, for the speakers. And, uh, luckily she did still live there. And so I could actually start, start something. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was six weeks and I was hooked just working with people, getting to know them, um, driving some very, very old cars around, uh, cause I didn't have any money for a rental car or anything like that. So I borrowed other people's cars. Yeah. It was an exciting time. That's so cool. That sounds amazing. So you just showed up in Australia with like an address and you were just really hoping that that would work out. But did you have a backup plan or? Mm, no, not really. No. <laughs> I mean, uh, I did, I did uh, meet some linguists beforehand who lived in Catherine. So I got in t- touch with them and they actually uh, provided me with a place to stay, which was super nice, of course. And I guess my backup plan would have been to, to see if they can introduce me to someone, but they wouldn't really have known anybody. I think at at the end of the day, once I was there, I realized that, but yeah, that was pretty much it. So um, yeah, I worked with the speakers whose address I had and then um, managed to go to a, to go to Timber Creek, which is a small little community to work with a bunch of people on Ngaliburu as well, which is a dialect uh, of Jamenjung or variant. And then also ended up uh, being able to go to Nukur, to do some Creole field work just because someone I met in Catherine happened to go there and they had a, they had a spare seat. So I, I tagged along and uh, did a really mammoth field, field work session in one day, met with five people, recorded like five hours worth of things in like as much as possible. And yeah, it formed the basis of my, my thesis. That's so cool. So your, your thesis was on all three languages or the Creole was something extra or? No, it was on all three languages. Okay. So it was on, um, comparing how in these languages we talk about space and motion, particularly motion. Um, and if there's any difference because the languages are typologically very different, but they are, they're very close spoken close to each other. A lot of people that speak Creole also speak an indigenous language. So seeing where the similarities and where the differences are in talking about space was uh, was my basic PhD. Oh, that's so interesting. So then you worked on uh, Malak Malak later. Yes, Malak Malak was my uh, postdoc. So after I finished the PhD, I I was really hooked on the fieldwork and documentation aspect. Um, for Jamenjung, for the PhD, I hadn't really been able to do an awful lot of documentation. I mean, I still, I, I went out, I did a lot of elicitation and uh, collected some narratives um, and all that, because time you talk about motion is in narratives. But I was really interested in working on a language that hadn't been documented that much. So yeah, I asked around and one of my friends in, in Adelaide, Rachel Nordlinger, she's a professor in Melbourne now. She suggested Malak Malak and uh, said that nobody had been working on it since the 70s and there was only a few people left and, and it had really cool verbs, she said. <laughs> and um, when I talked to my PhD advisor, Eva, about it, like she got really excited about the verbs as well. And I said, all right, I'll, I'll do that. And I had another very, very strange first time out there, which was uh, everything kind of that could have gone wrong, went wrong, but then still went well in the end. But uh, yeah, I had I had applied for a bunch of large grants to do documentation and one small grant to do like just for a pilot study kind of thing. I got the small grant before I heard about the large ones. So I could go, so I knew I could go for like six weeks to do a pilot study and kind of just try and meet people. 
um, and uh, and see if they would want to work with me because I hadn't met them, they hadn't met me, uh, just knew nothing about them, and there was no way for me to contact them beforehand. So um, I was very grateful when that got got funded, and because I got this pilot study, my these larger grants also got funded. So I knew that I would be coming back. But when I when I got there, I had uh, I had asked a a guy who had been living there for a long time, who happened to have email who had uh, suggested to, um, or he had offered to introduce me to the Malak Malak ladies because he had worked with them a little bit and done some recordings. But by the time I got there, he there had been a death in the community and uh, he was unable to come because of that death. On top of that, there had just been another death in the Malak Malak community. So people were really, un- really upset at the moment at the time and didn't want to talk to anyone, especially strangers. Yeah, so I, I didn't really know what to do. I was there. I was in a little tent on a on a campground, and I knew I had six weeks, and I needed to get to know these ladies to to do my postdoc because without them, I wouldn't be able to. So I hung out in all the public spaces that I possibly could find. I went to church and um and all that, and uh, that was all unsuccessful. But eventually, I managed to meet them in in the little community, and they really weren't weren't particularly uh, happy to meet me at first. Um, very very um just reluctant to meet new people and say, what do you want? We had other people come here. How are you different? And I just asked him to give me a chance and that, that indeed I would be different. I promised and that I would be coming back. And I told them that I had money to come back and this is what I was interested in. And luckily they agreed to take a chance. So yeah, so I started doing some preliminary work with them just kind of to get to know them and uh, show them what I would want to do. And a few months later, I came back and it went on. And every time I came there, there was uh, more people would talk to me and become friendlier and happier. And every time I could, like I brought some old recordings back with me that the guy in the 70s had recorded. I got them from an archive, brought them back, put them on CDs, brought them back. People really, really um, appreciated that. Everything that I recorded with them, I put on CDs uh, and left with them. Um, and always asked them what they wanted to do. And um, it took at least two years until they allowed me to do any video recording. But yeah, it was basically just being super, super patient and waiting, waiting for the right moments. And yeah, just being going with the flow, uh, even if that meant that you may got behind your research yeah. agenda. But that's just not how fieldwork works. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. Um I've only done two field trips so far, but the second time I went back in 2019, I was able to bring the recordings from the first field trip. And one of the speakers um, had passed away in between the time I had, you know, left for the first time and then come back. And his family was, was like so moved to be able to hear his voice and hear him speaking his language that it's really powerful, right, to be able to give those recordings back to the community. It's like so important, isn't it? Yeah, it it definitely is. Um, and and just being like showing that you that you're there and that you you're keeping your promise and that you are coming back. That that helped an awful lot. That I never promised anything that I couldn't keep mm-hmm. because uh, yeah, people people wouldn't wouldn't have appreciated that at all. And and by now, I mean, I feel like. Um, People put an awful lot of trust in me. Sometimes it's a bit scary how much, um, how much there is. But I was, um, definitely very happy to, while I was really doing research and all, I was only working with these three ladies mainly who were, um, three sisters, Malak Malak. Since then, there were also two more sisters and a brother 
that kind of listened in but never really joined uh, in the sessions. But those other three all passed away by now. And with every everyone passing away, the, the three ladies, the original three ladies, became more close to strangers and um, to new people coming in and even like doing the language work because it reminds them of their siblings. But I was still able to, to continue coming. And, uh, but during the time while I was there, I never, I always wanted to do some more revitalization work, but there was never any interest in it. Um, like there was no real, it was hard to find like a wider Malak Malak community and, um, nobody was really, was really into it. So I was, um, I kind of had given up on that a little bit and, uh, just done my thing and archived it and, uh, hoped that that would be okay. But then I got actually contacted by some people who I didn't know from Malak Malak community early last year who said, hey, we, we want to do some language stuff. And uh, we were told we need to talk to you. And so we had a few long conversations about what they wanted, what their goals were, and um, how many people were involved and all that. And at the time, I was working already for the Language Conservancy, just as a, as a contractor. Um, and uh, so I was kind of able to then offer them to do something more professional, rather than, you know, rather than a grammar or even a print dictionary, um, which is things that are very limited to um, a limited amount of people, it seems. So we actually did um, create an app, a vocab builder app with them. It took about a year, actually. It just came out literally this week. Which is super exciting. Oh wow, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's quite amazing to actually like see it in the flesh now uh, out there and yeah, and I'm just super happy that that that, that was there and it was a great first step for the community. And we might we might be able to do some more things like a a dictionary app or something like that or a dig- digital dictionary which would, you know, reach more people than some of the sketch dictionaries that I've left with people. But which I think people are really using, actually, the the few copies that I was able to leave um, are well-worn. But at the same time, they're also a very, it's a very humid climate there. So anything paper goes away very quickly. Yeah, yeah. So in this community, in the Malak Malak community, do they have the taboo of listening to people's voices or seeing people's images who have passed away? Does that pose a, a challenge for you? Yeah, yeah, there, there is this taboo, and that's a good question. So I, I've always, I've had, especially the the recordings that I brought back from people that had passed away quite a while ago, that wasn't that big of a problem, usually, because um, the longer someone has passed away, the the more open people will be. Basically, for, for this app, um, the ladies agreed to be recorded and to be, to, for it to be shared in a, in an app. If, uh, they should pass away, basically it's up to the Mark Mark community, to their closest family members to decide whether or not they want to, like, maybe not allow any new downloads or something like that for, for the app that they wouldn't, so that they wouldn't, uh, come into this problem. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, it, it always is an issue, but it seems people are mainly, well, really mainly concerned with, with local people who might, who might hear someone, uh, and might get upset, uh, about it and, um, understandably so. Um, but I think if that were to happen, um, there's also the typical disclaimers that you see for a lot of Australian languages on a lot of Australian languages sites. It says, you may, you may see the images and hear the voices of uh, people who have passed away. Um, as a as a warning, and then people people know if they don't want 
want to move forward. So it's not so much a problem. Like if, if other people are hearing these voices or seeing the images, that isn't so problematic for them, but they themselves don't want to see these uh, images and hear the voices. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. People don't really, um, don't really mind for anyone else to see it. If, if they open it up to the, a wider audience, um, for a lot of the, the languages I work with, people have always been very closed, um, and very protective of the languages for, for good reason to, to not share it with too many people. Like this app we just, uh, put out actually is, uh, is password protected. So it, it won't, it won't be available just for anyone, which, which is, not something I personally believe in necessarily, but uh, because I also simply don't think that there's a lot of interest, to be honest, outside the community, um, as bad as that is. But, you know, that's that's usually the case. But it is, yeah, it is password protected. So people um, want to only have it circulate within the Magma community. But what I found was that um, people don't really care too much or are very happy for me to share um, things with with researchers, with people from the faraway countries that I'm from, basically. But uh, they're a bit more reluctant to share with local people that are not Malak Malak. And that's also for a very good reason, uh, because there's there's a lot of, you know, traditional owners and welcome to country ceremonies and um, cultural events and all sorts of things where at the end of the day, some money can be made and money is not easy to come by in these remote communities. So they've had some incidents with people that were indigenous but not Malak Malak coming out and stating to be traditional owners of the country and doing welcome to country Malak Malak ceremonies. And of course, they're very, very eager to learn about Dreamtime stories and, and learn words and phrases that are important. So basically, they're happy this they're happy for it to be shared elsewhere, but not within the community or within a, a small radius of the community. Yeah, okay, I see. Can we talk about the Dreamtime narratives and spatial language? That's like something I don't know anything about, and I find it really, really fascinating. Yeah, um, so do I. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, and I've, I've done uh, a few publications on that, and it's, uh, but it, it is something that's like really hard to understand. Um, I feel for an outsider. It was for me for a long time, and I know that I haven't even gotten, um, gotten even like a quarter of it really. But what is really interesting about the Dreamtime and the English translation of, of that or the English term Dreamtime is a is a very misleading one. Because the, the Dreamtime is uh, as has been coined by um by Stanner, it is every when. So it is something that is everywhere but also all the time. So it's not the past, it's not the present, it's not the future, it's all three of them at the same time. So all these uh, creation stories, basically a dream time are creation stories, but creation is circular and it happens continuously, it happens all the time. People tell the stories of how um, the ancestral beings, they could all talk to each other and they traveled the land, they named the land, they created landscape features, gorges, rivers, mountains, and left behind clues uh, in the landscape, uh, and where they're left behind clues, there's a sacred spot today where people go and tell that part of the story. And when they tell the part of the story, then the story continues to live and the story continues to happen. So things are, the, the animals are still there. They have been there for a long time, but they're also gone at, at the moment. So it's, it's very complex. And, um, one thing I found when listening to the stories over and over, and there was one particular story I, I 
listened to many, many different times. I got many different versions of it. And I could never quite got it. It was a story about a blue tongue lizard, but it was a sacred site close to where the Malak Malak ladies lived and still live. And I could never quite understand what the sequence of events was in which things happened. Because the, the blue tongue lizard, he was fighting with a king brown snake. And um, and there was another lizard there. And they all got kind of involved until eventually the, the blue tongue lizard was, was killed by the king brown snake and went into the ground where there is now the sacred space. Uh, versus all the, but the king brown and the other lizard kind of left and never to be heard of. And... And they told me the story in all sorts of different ways. And sometimes the, sometimes the blue tongue lizard was killed first. Sometimes the, the other lizard left before he was killed. And sometimes he didn't. And, um, then eventually I realized that, um, the story was told a little bit differently in different areas. So the story had different parts. There was one part to where the lizard went into the ground, so where he died. Then there's other parts where he um, collected some mushrooms and and roasted them on a big on a big rock, and it's another sacred site. And there's a mountain where he did something else, where he kind of climbed over and and uh, where where he rubbed his belly raw. So I realized that when people were in different locations, they focus on different parts of the story. And then um, I looked into that a bit further for this particular story and for some others where I had different versions and different locations. And it really seemed as if the story and where and how it was told was dependent on where it was, where it was set. And then that particular location became the focal point of the story and everything around it. It didn't matter when it happened, like temporal timeframes got, got mixed around quite a bit. That's why I could never really understand it. But because it didn't actually matter what the sequence of events is, the only thing that matters is where it took place and that there it left something behind for the people uh, to observe and for the people to talk about. And a Dreamtime story is never told in full. It is always told in fragments. And the the idea in the, in the well, not conscious, but the, the idea in the uh, oral history of it is that children will learn, listen to the story. Children and adults will listen to the story so many different times that eventually, when they are elders themselves and start telling the story, they know all the parts of it. But you never just hear the whole thing all at once. Wow. Yeah, and that that was. I'm I'm still fascinated by it, just thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. So, just just trying to to reiterate this so to make sure that I understand. So. Let's say the same elder tells the story three times and he's at three different locations each time he tells the story. So depending on where he is, the story will be different and focus on the location that he's currently telling the stream time narrative. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's correct. Yeah. That's so cool. And I noticed that for other languages as well, I actually um, noticed that for German Jung too. Um, that's, um, the same things happened there. And actually people also tell Creole stories, um, um, along these same lines, even though, of course, the Creole stories are not as traditional. Um, not, they're usually newer. And it also seemed that this, this whole narrative structure, this narrative scheme travels over to other types of narratives that are not dreamtime narratives. So when someone tells a story of a, of traveling somewhere or some event, you know, you went fishing or someone went out bush, went camping. People will tell it not necessarily in temporal order of events. What I noticed was temporal order of events was maintained during the journey 
when when someone was when all the people were traveling there. So then we crossed the river and then we drove this dirt road and we took a turn and this and that. But then once you are at the location where things are happening, there are uh, all like all sorts of events happen at when whenever and it doesn't matter what the what the actual sequence of them is, but it just all happens in one place. So we're going to focus on where it happens, but not when it happens. Wow. Gosh, it's like very complicated to think about as a English speaker, isn't it? Yeah, it, it sure is. And and we also use and we're also used to, you know, the Labov a structure of narratives and what happens and there's an introduction, there's a main part and there's a climax and you know certain parts that are a necessary part of every narrative but for these narratives it just doesn't work like that at all there's no such thing yeah wow that's really interesting so shifting a little bit you run an ecotourism and education business 180 forward can we talk about how uh, as researchers we can decrease our environmental impact do you have any ideas or thoughts about that yeah i mean that's a that's a really good question and um I mean, I am all about really um, sustainability and regeneration. So um, I don't think we can solve the problems that we have by all driving electric cars or all recycling or um, using LED lights. Uh, These are all nice steps and uh, it's not a bad thing. But at the end of the day, we have to think about what is sustainable and what is um, actually more than sustainable, what is regenerative, especially as researchers and especially as uh, researchers working with indigenous and endangered languages. We never just want to uh, preserve the status quo. We want to help, usually, want to help these languages come back to, uh, really come back to life and and become their own entities again. So I think like as researchers, and, and maybe that's less of an environmental impact, but more taking this idea of sustainability and regeneration uh, into what we focus on in our work is to really focus on creating creating new speakers and creating new language warriors, people that take control and take ownership of the language and uh, and run with it and not um, and not focus on preserving a particular type of um language in particular, you know, this is how the elders spoke and this is exactly what the language is like. Nothing else is is correct. Uh, I mean, languages change, languages evolve, uh, and we need to let them because they are they are living things. Uh, and I feel if we try to just preserve a pretty random status quo, which is, um, you know, just happens to be the people that we work with who are the oldest people that we can find or whatever it is, or just the people that want to work with us, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that that uh, is is what uh, what the language is all about. And I mean, in so many ways, being kind of taking it that f- one step further. So if we, if we take the skill set that we have as linguists to document, describe a language uh, in a way that really helps the community to revitalize it on their own terms and doing the things that uh, are important, is important for them, then we really create stewards of the language. And just like that, we also create stewards of culture and stewards of the land. Um, I mean, how often have I heard people from different indigenous um, tribes and nations describe to me how the language connects them to the land and how the language connects them to the animals and every tree and every mountain and every river that's in it. 
But without the language, we don't, we lose that connection. Mm-hmm. People talk about that a lot. Like the elders that know the language and that live it every day. And you, you must know that too. Like getting a glimpse into this other language, you get this glimpse into this different, slightly different way of world. thinking and new world. Exactly. So this is what, you know, as, as researchers, we need to focus on to get people to that, to help people to that stage. And, you know, not being the white saviors and not being, it's quite difficult to come into a community as an outsider and being like, I know what to do and I can help you and all that. And, but really listening what is important for people uh, and how can we help them to become involved and engaged so that they can carry on what they want to do. And, and yeah, and I think this is, is, these are very lofty goals and they're very, very difficult to achieve. And I'm very aware of that, of course. But, you know, if, if we can't, if we don't aim high, I mean, what are we, what are we doing? So might as well try for the stars, pretty much. That's kind of where, where I think we, we can do that. And, um, yeah. And, and even thinking about, I mean, on a very simple level to be, we, we travel very far distances to get to the places that we go to and uh, use a lot of fossil fuels and all this. At the same time, I mean, this is in the same realm as driving an electric car, or driving a Prius and uh, recycling everything that you have or composting, all great little things. And yes, reducing our environmental footprint is a good thing. But at the same time, if with this kind of travel, you can empower some other people to really, really do more and to to take a step back and reconnect to the land it must be worth it yeah yeah so so i i wouldn't really say you know don't fly to far away places because you have to fly in five airplanes and take a lot of cars Mm -hmm. to get there if it's worth it if what you want to do is really uh really something for the community um then then it is worth it yeah yeah totally yeah, that's that's such a good point. I really struggle with the fossil fuels from airplanes thing. On the one hand, I think I totally agree with what you're saying that like if you're doing the work, then it it is like a good trade-off. But I don't only get on an airplane to do field work. When I lived in the UK, I took an airplane to come home and visit my family and you know go on holiday and it's something I like really struggle with and I'm not sure how to like reconcile that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I do too. And I mean, I'm I'm from Germany originally, so I go back to visit my my family whenever I can. I have been in Australia quite a lot. I basically have you know a second family down there, and uh, we live on the opposite side of the country from my partner's parents. So we do travel a lot, and normally we fly a lot. But we also we made the conscious decision to to say. If we want to participate in this world, and if we want to try and make a small difference, we have to we have to do these things. We have to travel, and we have to um, use fossil fuels, whether that's with our car driving around. We live in a rural community, so we we need a car to get anywhere. And in a lot of ways, living in a big city would probably be more environmentally friendly because we could you know, there's more sharing resources for transportation and all this. Versus out here, we just you just have no other choice. But the, the alternative is to be a hermit in the woods, basically. If you don't, I mean, it is quite <laughs> radical, but if you don't want to have any environmental impact, you need to live a hermit life in the woods. Yeah, no, I don't want to be a hermit in the woods. <laughs> no, and, and exactly. I mean, m- most of us don't. So then how do we, 
how do we reconcile? We make that connection. And, and one part of our idea is to help people learn about smaller impact living. Uh, and that has to do with the off-grid earthship that we have in New Mexico and where people can experience what it's like to live in a completely off-the-grid, built with sustainable and recycled materials-only house that heats and cools itself, produces all its own water, electricity, produces its own food. Uh, it's just a very radical, but on the other hand, very simple idea. And being able to expose people to that, we get a lot of feedback from that where people are very, very happy that they've had the opportunity to just experience what it's like to live off the grid that is not being a hermit in the woods, that is not being in a in a cave down by the yeah. river. And and I think that's, we have to make these choices. Yeah. Uh, but we can all do still very small parts. There, There's a lot of things that are more important in that realm than it, it is to, um, you know, what, what car you drive or anything. It's actually more environmentally friendly to drive an old beat up car that's uh, been 30 years on the road, but that's still running than buying a new Tesla mm. could ever be because of all the energy and everything that went into producing it. Yeah. And there's a lot of ways we can, you know, make our houses more energy efficient and uh, more, more sustainable, more resilient that people don't really think about when they think about living uh, living a low-impact life. Yeah, yeah. I think exposure is really important, right? Because a lot of people don't think critically about the electric car. They just see that it's electric, and then they're like, okay, well, this must be good. Right. But they don't consider that it's only, you know, the electric car is only as green as the electricity that exactly. fuels it. And then, but if you can expose people to different ways to do what they can do, then... It gives them more opportunities and just things to think about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And, and just small impact living, like being at a tiny house, just downsizing kind of, kind of things. It's a big movement right now, of course, or having, of course, right now we hear what everybody's planting a garden. Um, but there's so much you can do on a very small scale at home uh, that makes you more resilient, makes your landscape more resilient, helps the environment by feeding local wildlife and providing habitat and all these little things. I mean, there's so many things that come into that. And, you know, I, I don't know, we can circle back to researchers from here. But <laughs> still, you know, we, we are part of that in, in uh, you know, being at, at universities and um, uh, living our lives. But it, you know, we, we can all make a make a small difference on our own. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. We can all we can all do what we can do. So circling back to research, <laughs> I was wondering, you talked a little bit about your app and how your fieldwork ideology is to work with the community and see like what their vision is. But can you talk a little bit more about how your research has been collaborative? Yeah, so I've always been when I when I worked in academia, I've always been a very much of a lone wolf. And I think a lot of us um, are in that same situation where we're the only or almost the only person who works on a particular language. If somebody else works on the language, they might work in a different community. So you're very much on your own. You go out to the field alone, you do your thing, uh, collect your data, write about it. Great. Produce some materials, uh, whatever is needed. But the thing was for me always when I wanted to do any uh, actual actually revitalization materials, uh, like I tried to produce a small picture book with the, the story of the blue tongue lizard that I told you about a little bit. But 
I don't know how to design a book. I'm I'm not good at that. I I don't know what the, what a good editing procedure is and how to put things together and how to make it look nice. I'm not an illustrator. I can't illustrate anything. So all I could do was put actual pictures in there and try to draw some maps, which are quite crude to be honest. Um, I mean, they, <laughs> they did they did their job, but it it was it was a very uh, very slow process. And um, you know, it's just talents that I and skills I don't have. And that uh, took me a long time to even learn some of this, because even like to put it into a certain program, to put it together into a little booklet. So when I started working with the Language Conservancy, which is a, a nonprofit, and we work with 30, 35 languages in the US, Canada, and Australia, it was all of a sudden this, this teamwork, this team effort from all angles. It was uh, not just from an, uh, from a linguistics perspective that you work with other people who are experts in the language. But people with different backgrounds come together. So there's graphic designers that help design the books or the uh, images or anything that needs to be um, drawn, designed in any way. And then there's others. There's an IT department that knows how to how to code an app. Like I could have never done that. Um, I mean, there are certain ways to to put an app together yourself, but it would have never been as nice as this one. Uh, obviously working with an artist to make all the different animal pictures. We created over 220 new images just for this app because we've done it before for Native American languages, but obviously the animals and plants are very, very different and people are very different in Australia. So we had to change a lot. So without that, I wouldn't have been able to to do any of this. And I feel because in academia we have our incentives are mainly and they kind of have to be, that's the nature of the beast, are to publish and to research our data and, and to put out linguistic discussions. But but that's very focused on, on the narrow aspect of linguistics and of grammatical aspects or whatever you happen to be interested in. For me, there was always spatial language and typology. Other people are interested in syntax and phonology. And then that's all you know about a language is a lot about phonology, but nothing about the morphosyntax or vice versa. So... Being able to to open yourself up to other people, first of all, other researchers as well, like experts in phonology and phonetics. Like I've, that's never been my forte, and I've never been too interested in that. But I would have loved for someone to really look into that for Malak Malak uh, some more, which never really happened. And for a lot of people, that's not what they do. And it is this. It seems to be this mindset in our field as well that being the lone wolf is a good thing. And it uh, it secures our careers if if that's our language and we can we're the only ones working with it so we have a lifetime of publications ahead of us just with with this one language that that we really know well but yeah i'm i'm all for sharing sharing as much as possible and and also really considering what what are your skills and what are your strengths and what what are they not and what's the best use of your time you know, I mean, maybe I could really learn how to code an app or put an app together, but is that a good use of my time? Probably not. And this is across a lot of projects that we do, where we always work in a team, and ideally with a team of researchers and linguists as well, where maybe there's one person who's the lead linguist on a project and who has like final say, say, because you need someone like that and everything. Uh, if it's all collaborative and someone just cannot agree on the right spelling for a word because is there a tone or is it a falling or is it a rising tone? What is it? Then there just needs to be one person that, look, I know, I know what it is. So you definitely need that and it needs to be uh, clear what's happening there. But 
if you want to do real revitalization work, being able to where are your, your limits and how much good work can you really do with the skill set that you have and maybe seeing if there are some professionals out there that can help you to really design a nice picture book rather than rather than just putting something very crudely together like I did, which took me a long time and it's still nice that I did it, but it's nothing that I can you know, write home about really or, or show someone outside of the community. <laughs> so... Um, I guess I'm talking about it right now, but so so I so I am writing yeah. home about it. But um, yeah, it's certainly nothing that I would show around a lot. But professionally produced books are something very nice that raises the status of a language yeah. quite a bit, and and that makes a big difference when people actually have something real in their hands, something that is tangible and that looks as if as if it was made for them mm-hmm. um, with a lot of skill. Yeah, definitely. Do you have any advice for early career researchers who are just starting out? Yeah, it's it's always a hard one. Um, I, I know how how difficult it is uh, to come out of a PhD into um, the so-called real world. And the job market is awful, as, as we all know. And it's hard because we're not really getting prepared for anything other than being a researcher and being an academic. But I mean, my advice is to to really keep an open mind, and uh, even during your PhD and and while you're you're doing your graduate studies, uh, maybe do a postdoc. Keep an open eye on an open mind for what else is out there and how else you could use your skills, um, the skills that you have to really make a difference. And that doesn't only mean the most obvious thing for a lot of people. A lot of my friends are are doing that is uh, being in. Uh, in computer uh, linguistics, uh, working for Google, working for Amazon, working for Apple. If that's something that you're interested in, then, you know, do that straight away and take a computational linguistics course. But not only that, but also take some coding classes, take some classes that actually help you in that. If you're really interested in, you know, nonprofit work, then really reach out and try to do something, maybe try to do a little project on the side. Some things I did was... Basically, yeah, bringing some projects with me to the organization I work for now. And, and by now I'm actually full time working for them. And that was a long process. It was, it started out just as a contractor and just as a, on a project basis. Then I brought in my own project and, uh, just being able to have that and fostering these relationships and, and keeping, keeping an open mind for that. I think it's for a long time. I was definitely very, very focused on the academic career. And that was the only thing I could think about, but I wasn't successful in getting any, uh, any jobs. I got postdoctoral grants. Um, for some reason I was, I was good at getting those, but not real jobs. Uh, and after a while that also really gets to you and it gets to your, um, psyche and you feel like, are you really doing the right thing? And are you good enough for it? And the thing is, I would say to anyone who thinks that, like, yes, you are good enough for it, but the, situation, the job market, the uh, nature of the beast that academia is, is so that a lot of cards are stacked against you. And that's not just what you can do, but also who you know, where you're from, where you, uh, what your thesis is, what your topic is about, what you're interested in, what theory you work in. I mean, there was always a real outsider, especially here in the States, working on typology and working on functional linguistics rather than and descriptive linguistics, rather than more in the Chomskyan field, especially when I was at the University of Chicago, I felt 
I felt like such an outsider and I really felt like, man, I'm, I'm not a real linguist. I'm, I'm an imposter. I don't know what I'm doing here. And not until I actually came back to Australia to go to a conference there and realized that all these people knew me and they knew some of my work and my papers and were interested in talking to me and working with me. I realized, oh, it's, it's not that much me. It's just like that I'm in the wrong spot in a lot of ways. Um, and there's just very few places where I can be. And that's even, there's very, very few places for descriptive linguists in, in the States in particular. So yeah, just, you know, hone your skill set and, and gain more skills. And it always helps to also have some organization skills, some project management skills, some, um, yeah, some skills that go beyond the linguistics, but also being able to do things on time, finish things on time and, uh, <laughs> and being able to prove that you can. I mean, that landed me this full-time job now as linguistic project manager is that I have skills that go beyond my uh, expertise in linguistics, but just proving that, you know, being able to get things done and keeping things organized, which is not that difficult. And most of us that are, are come out of academia can do it because we all wrote a thesis, which was a lot of tiny little moving parts to put together. So we can all do it, but we should sell it some more. <laughs> Yeah, that's so true. That's really so true. Um, well, thank you so much, Dora. This has been really great, really informative. Where can our listeners learn more about your work and find things that you're doing? Yeah, so uh, you can go to um, languageconservancy.org. Um, that's where we work now. We have uh, also languageconservancy.au, if you're listening from Australia, that talks a lot about all the different projects that we do, different um deliverables and, and all that. I do have some personal um, sites out there. They're a bit outdated by now, but I try to keep um, some of my uh, research papers out there. So if you just uh, search for my name and Malak Malak or linguistics. I'll link it in the description in the show notes. <laughs> Great. Yeah, there's there's definitely that. And, um, and yeah, if you ever want to experience a uh, staying in an earth ship or in a tiny house let me know that's also uh, something we do has nothing to do with linguistics but sometimes you just have to get away yeah yeah totally thank you so much doro oh thank you <laughs> you've been listening to field notes a podcast about linguistic field work this podcast is hosted and produced by martha satsui billens with production help from laura satsui our music is by lobo loco and our logo is by evil designs if you have a question or fieldwork experience to share you can email us at fieldnotespod at gmail.com you can also follow us on twitter and instagram at ling field notes if you've enjoyed this episode please leave us an apple podcast review thanks for listening Thank you.